The scripture reading for today is Psalm 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brent. Okay, so we're continuing our series, um, looking at the Psalms. We're on Psalm 4 this morning. And um, kind of the big idea I want us to think about is what does it mean to have a God-ordered perspective? Like, what does that mean? And I'm not comprehensively covering the topic in this sermon. I hope you understand that. But there's some things in Psalm 4 that really help us think about what it might mean for each of us, even this week, to live into a God-ordered perspective. Like, what would it mean for us to have a God-ordered perspective? <clears throat> I'm reading a book. Uh, it's called The Gentle Answer by Scott Sauls. And he tells this story about being in Manhattan. And he and his friend are driving around. And they're going somewhere. And there's a, they have a flat tire. <clears throat> and unfortunately, where they have a flat tire is in an area that it has really a high level of criminal activity. And so naturally, they are nervous, right? They stop. They get out of the car. Uh, they get the spare tire out, and before they can do anything, a man hops out from behind a bush with a plastic bag over him, a makeshift kind of raincoat, and says, hey, can I help you with that? Like, I know how to do that. Can, do, you, do you need some help? And they didn't want to be rude, and they were like, sure, you can help us. And so this guy goes back behind a bush and grabs a toolkit, and he changes their tire really quickly and puts it back on and says, hey, there you go. And Scott says they tried to pay the man. He said, no, that's, that's unnecessary. I, I like to help people. That's, that's what I do. So I'm glad I could help you, and you guys can go on your way. And I said, wow, thank you. And they shook, they shook his hand. They said, what's your name? And he said, Hitler. And they were like, okay, great, great to meet you. And so they get back in the car, and they're talking, and they're like, who would name their child Hitler? Like, who would set their kid up for a life like that? And then, as you know, these two pastors, they're pastors, right? So they go right to the Bible, and they're like, you know what? God is all about redefining things. Abraham is a cowardly husband whom the Lord made the father of all who have faith. Jacob is a habitual liar whom the father made the, the, the father of 12 tribes of Israel. Rahab is a prostitute whom the Lord lists among the faithful in Hebrews 11. Mary Magdalene, a once demon-possessed woman who the Lord made, ended up making the first eyewitness to the resurrection. Matthew, a crooked thief, is commissioned by the Lord to write the first of the four Gospels. Saul of Tarsus is a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man whom the Lord will eventually use to write a third of the New Testament. Are you, getting, you picking up on the theme? A God-ordered perspective can be very different than the kind of perspective you might come up with 
on your own. The reality is, if you lean solely and you find your default is to trust your gut above all else, you will most definitely end up with a misaligned heart when it comes to who God is. What does it mean for us to begin to live in such a way and walk in such a way and read the scriptures in such a way that lend us to a God-ordered perspective? We live in a world of disorder, right? That's almost rhetorical at this point. Like our current experience has a lot of disorder in it. But even before the pandemic, disorder was quite present in my life. Whether you think about disorder in relationships or disorder in work, yes, even on church staff, there can be disorder, and there is, right? Um, maybe it's disorder physically. For those of you who are younger than 25, you might not understand this, but for those of us who are over 25, we feel the encroaching impact of physical disorder upon our bodies. Uh, I get sunburned in the top of my head now a lot more than I did when I was 25, right? Disorder is real. In the scriptures, in the earliest book of the Bible in Genesis, we actually learn about the entire cosmos as being in a state of disorder. The Hebrew is tahu vabohu, basically. It, 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 that's sort of how you say it. But it means formless and void. That the universe as you know it, the creation as you know it, was formless and void. It was a place of disorder until the creative one enters into it, as we read in Colossians chapter 1, enters into it and speaks all things into being. He takes disorder, and what does he do with it? He brings order on a cosmic level. And Psalm 4, David is in a place of disorder, and he's longing for God to give him a God-ordered perspective. And what's powerful and wonderful about it is where God's leading him, what order looks like is peace. Answer me when I call to you my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Verse 6, many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. God is in the business of taking disorder and bringing order to it. And that order leads to an unshakable peace. That's God's desire. Living into a God-ordered life means you're living toward peace, even if it doesn't feel like it at first, like denying your temptations. By denying it, you're actually living toward peace. By choosing to forgive someone that doesn't deserve it, you're living toward a God-ordered reality that's going to lead you to peace. When you're humble, and all you really want to do is tell your story and, and kind of celebrate your accolades, and they should be celebrated. I'm not saying they shouldn't be. But in the midst of your humility and in a desire to love other people, you're actually bringing into reality the God-ordered perspective that brings peace. So, two kind of areas we're going to talk about. A God-ordered perspective and then the other perspectives. And they're in this text, actually. There's three other perspectives in this text that yield disorder, that lead to the opposite of peace. They are the antithesis to God's desire and plans for your life. So a God-ordered perspective and then the other ways. When you're thinking about a God-ordered perspective, part of what it means in the beginning, and that's what the Psalms are about, that's what prayer means, it means being willing to converse with God. Okay, It means being willing to consider your relationship with God as a real, personal thing. To trust in Jesus and to begin to take things to Him in your heart, in prayer, with others who trust Jesus, to begin to lean into the promises of who God is. To converse. 
And, and the psalmist does that. Why does the psalmist have a God-ordered perspective? You know, two things. He sees God's heart and God's gift. God's heart and God's gift. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you men turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? The psalmist is calling out for God to answer him. Why is he compelled to do so? Well, part of it is he's being drawn to the heart of God. He knows that God will hear him. His first words, answer me when I call you my righteous God. Have you considered that reality? That when you call out to God, God actually hears you. It does not fall upon deaf ears. It doesn't just go through the ceiling and, and, and sort of, you know, go into the atmosphere and to nowhere. God, your cries actually fall upon the ears of God. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Now, I recently watched a, a modern rendition of Herman Melville's Moby Dick, right? And um, the, the whalers there, it's, it's, it's like a really interesting story, but they're, just, they're destroying the whale population. So it's, it's kind of a weird experience. But they're chasing after these whales, and eventually they're destitute. Their ship gets destroyed. Sorry if I'm ruining the story for you. It has been out for a while. Just, just say it. Their ship gets destroyed. They're stranded on an island. They're stranded at sea. They have no hope. The only thing they continue to cry out to is the only one who might have any kind of power to deliver them. They're, they're being chased by this whale who's like the defender of all the whales uh, in, in the sea. And this beast is chasing them. And the only one they can cry out to is God. And over and over again, they cry out to him. You know, the psalmist has kind of that spirit about him. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. You may experience this in your life. You know, as a pastor, I get a front row seat with a lot of people to get to see what God's doing in their heart, and it's sacred, and I'd never tell your stories in front of other people like this, but I'm just telling you, as someone who gets to see a lot of that happen, most of us go through moments in our lives where we say, God, you're the only one who might possibly be able to hear me, and he does. It's mysterious, and yet it's tangible. We can call out to God and expect a response, and people have been asking this question for thousands of years. Charles Spurgeon was this pastor and preacher, and he has this sermon that I read back when I was in seminary 20-something years ago called The Argument and Prayer. And you can find that online and read it. But his whole point in that sermon is to talk about how we can actually go before God and argue with Him. Now, when you and I talk about argument, we, we think of a courtroom, right? I'm going to make my case. God's going to hear it. If I can make my case, God will respond. That's not what Charles Spurgeon is talking about. What he's talking about is this idea that God wants to give you something on him. He wants you to be able to say, God, you have said you will hear my cry, and I'm going to hold you to hearing my cry. You have said you care about me and love me. I'm going to hold you to that. I can argue this out with you. I can reason with you. I can count on you to be the God you say you're going to be. Answer me when I call you. You know, it's one thing to know that God hears you. That's important. But how will he respond? You know, I remember when I was young, probably about eight or nine years old. This might give some of you parents encouragement, you know, as you're raising your little kids. I was a terror. I can t I'm going to tell you so many stories over our time together. But one time, what I used to do is I would yell at cars as they would go by, okay? Hey! You know, the little eight-year-old Brad out there, hey! And they'd never stop. I wondered if they could hear me. Well, one time I knew they could hear me. 
Because the guy slammed on his brakes and got out of his car. And all I could think was, how is he going to respond? And he got out and goes, what? I was like, hey, man. He goes, go away. You know, that was the end of it. A lot of times when we call out to someone or something, we want to know if they can hear us. That's important. But how will they respond? You know, that, that's actually kind of the journey of faith. We cry out, God, I know you can hear me, but how will you respond? Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. God hears you. God responds to you because of what Jesus has done. Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, God makes it possible for you to always be certain that God hears you and he responds to you. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You can call out to God and He will always respond in this way because He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is forever. And He says, if you call out to me, you can guarantee I'm going to respond to you with grace. I'm going to hear your prayer. I'm going to respond to you. God hears David. And David's not groveling. That's actually not what God calls us to. He doesn't call us to grovel before him, to beg him, to go on and on and wonder if he'll be gracious to us. He actually says, I will hear you. In fact, the entire story of the Bible, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, what you find is a God who is gracious to his people, absolutely speaks truth into their life, which often means discipline and correction. He never, ever abandons them except one do you know the only person who knows what it's like to be utterly abandoned by god is jesus himself jesus on the cross cries out to his father why have you forsaken me for the first time in human history a human knows what it's like to have god's favor completely removed and it is unbearable even for the son of god that's amazing and he dies he rises from, again from the dead. That relationship is restored. But Jesus knows what it's like to call out to a God who can hear him and will not respond. You will never know what that's like. God will always respond to you. He has been faithful to you. It doesn't always mean that it'll be easy. But it always means the divine love of God will be for you even when you're not interested. God loves us even while we are yet sinners. God hears us. He's merciful to us. He responds rightly to us with his mercy. What does it mean for us to begin to live into that? What happens to us when we do? Listen to verses 7 and 8 again. The psalmist writes, Fill my heart with joy. When their grain and new wine abound, in peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. When we begin to, by faith, live into a God-ordered perspective that says, I'm going to call out to God. I know he's going to hear me. He says he'll be gracious to me. I hope that I can see it, but I need faith to believe it. When we begin to do that, this is, this is the fruit. Fill my heart with joy. In peace I will lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. A God-ordered life begins to move us toward experiencing joy. That is not the same thing as being happy all the time. You will not be happy all the time. In fact, you'll experience great frustration and difficulty in this life. The question becomes, when you know I am not joyful, where do you begin to go to find out what your motivating force for dealing with that difficulty is? Is it going to be your own manipulation to fix a situation? Is it going to be your own sort of use of power to fix a situation? Is it going to be the experience of denial? Where are you going to go to face the thing that's a joy sapper? We go to the joy giver by putting our hope in him, asking ourselves the question, what's our ultimate hope? Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, His favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Part of our Christian spirituality and believing who Jesus is is we understand that this world is in a state of disorder and our God, who has risen from the dead, is able through his perfect power and grace to slowly move us into a joy that will lead us to peace. A God-ordered perspective. David writes here, in peace I will lie down and sleep. We all know what it's like to not be able to sleep because we're anxious. We all know what that's like. When you're sleeping, you are your most vulnerable, right? You're out. When you're sleeping, you're keenly aware of how you are not in control. The scriptures are reminding us that even in that moment, our God is in control. That our God is not vulnerable. And that he is the one who watches over us. Now one way to think about it is where do you need to maybe lie down and sleep in your life? You know, my son William is going to college next week. I wish I could go with him and, like, make sure everything is perfect and, and tell his teachers, you know, can make sure communication happens with the teachers and make sure he has all his assignments and, and like, do everything. I can't. He's got to go be a man and go to college. I'm entrusting him to the God who made all things, knows all things, is able to care for all things, even my son. And that brings me joy. We read in this text, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's God's promise. We read in verse 6, Many, Lord, are asking, Who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Now understand this. Anytime you read a statement like this, in the Older Testament especially, let, your light, let the light of your face shine upon us, it is always, um, at least as far as I've seen, hearkening back to number 6 and the ironic blessing, the blessing that Aaron speaks over the people, God, we read this in the scriptures. Um, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is from number 6, verses 22 to 27. This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God is gracious to us. It's something we, this is something we actually sing over our children when they're baptized, Right? that God's grace would shine upon them, that the light of his face would shine upon them, that God would not look at them based on their grades, that God would not look at us based on our performance, that God would not look on us based on even our ability to be perfectly moral or gracious or humble, but rather God would let his grace shine upon us because of who he is. He is God who loves us, who has been gracious to us. We don't have to beg him for favor. You know, if you ever get to come over to my house for dinner, I hope you get to at some point. But if you come over, you get to meet our dog, Billy. 
And Bentley, when we eat dinner, I mean, that, he is more dependable than the clock on my phone. At certain hours of the day, just this little biological clock goes off in his head, and he's like, it's time to eat. And he, lets, he communicates it. Go, we got to eat. And if we're eating dinner together around the table, he will hover. And every now and then, I know it's not good, and my vet's watching, but I throw food at him and give him some food. Right? I throw food at him. And I'm like, here, there's some food. Go away. And then he goes off. He's happy. We're happy. We're all happy. I want you to imagine you come over to my house for dinner, and this strange thing happens. We sit down to eat, and all of a sudden, Avery, William, and Walker show up, and they're just sort of hovering around the table. They're just walking around the table. And Jamie goes, oh, and throws a noodle at one of them. And they, they get it. They get the noodle. And then I throw a piece of chicken, and they, they get the chicken. And then we're like, shoo, go away. That is so wrong to take that kind of dignity away from your children. Like, it's, it's almost even tough to, like, use it as an illustration. Because who would treat their kids like this? You realize this is how God views you. You are the beloved before him. When you come to him and you say, Lord, hear me, respond to me, be gracious to me, show me what it means to live into a God-ordered perspective that will lead me towards joy, would you do that? You know one thing you can do this week to begin to move you in that perspective, to move you in that direction, to gain a God-ordered perspective? Because God's word is living and powerful and able to teach and correct and mold us. I want you to read Psalm 4 this week as a prayer. To pray this psalm to God and say, Lord, answer me when I call to you. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Give me this joy that you promised to give as I trust in Jesus. God hears us. He's merciful to us. He desires to bring peace to us. That's what it, in part, what it means for us to begin to live into a God-ordered perspective. Now, you can't do this on your own. God's going to have to do a work in you over a long period of time. It's why those who've been walking with Jesus for so long, there's just something about them. They have this peace. In the midst of difficult situations and circumstances, they seem to be able to calibrate off of who God is first. Y'all, that's a learned discipline. They have to marinate in God's spirit for a long time. So for those of you who are there, that's why we can be so gracious with people when they're struggling with it. Because it's God's spirit at work among us in different parts of our journey. And no matter where we are in our journey, God is gracious to us. God calls out to us to respond to him. Okay, a couple other things. There are three other perspectives in this text that you are going to struggle with, that I struggle with, all right? Other perspectives our hearts can have besides a God-ordered perspective, and these points are much smaller and shorter, so don't worry, they're quick. The first is the fractured heart versus the faithful heart. The fractured heart versus the faithful heart. Listen to verse 2 again. How long will you men turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? See, there's two things there. They, they misunderstand God, capital G, like the Lord, and they misunderstand other gods, little g. They misunderstand God because we read, how long will you turn my glory into shame? What, what they're saying there is, how long will you teach false things about who the real God is? How much longer will you turn my glory into shame? This happens in our context right here in Houston. People who teach, for example, that if you'll just trust Jesus, it's all going to be okay, the happy, clappy version of Jesus, that whole thing, that is not true. That's turning God's glory into shame. 
Uh, Peter suffered. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. Mary suffered. That, there's something missing there. What's missing is it's, it's a lie. It's a misunderstanding of who God is. God doesn't promise to make it easy. God promises to make your path straight as you trust in Him. He carries you. He's the one who goes before you as your battle shield, as we talked about last week. So there's a misunderstanding of capital G of who God is. You know, the idea that Christians aren't as sinful as everyone else. Yes, we are. Paul says he's the greatest of all sinners. You need to know this if you hang out with me, if you don't know me well. I am not, I'm going to make a mistake. That's going to happen. I'm going to sin against you. You're actually going to have to have forgiveness and grace for your pastor. Sorry. But you're going to. Because I am in need of God's grace as much as anyone else. I may even send out an email that later I say, you know what, I was wrong about that. Prepare yourselves. God's grace is sufficient even for me. Don't misunderstand who God is. Don't turn his glory into shame. But then there's also in this text a misunderstanding of the other, the little gods. Did you hear it? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? No one really believes. No one really believes this. That if you just have as much money as you in the world, you just have all the money you want, you'll, you'll be happy. No one really believes that. Ask anybody who has it. No one really believes that if you're really attractive, life's just easier. You can ask somebody else, not me, who's attractive. No one really believes that perfectly behaved children never misbehave. No one believes that. And yet we tell ourselves this lie that, oh, I'm so embarrassed. My kids misbehaved. Everyone must think I'm a horrible person. Or, oh my goodness, I said something I shouldn't have said. Everyone must think I'm a horrible person. Listen, part of believing the grace of God for yourself is beginning to, be, to believe it for other people. That we can be gracious to each other because God's been gracious to us. The delusions are false idols. They're other things that promise what only God himself can give. And the problem is, none of those things can actually give you what God promises to give. And the good news is, God can give you everything he promises to give. No longer believe in delusions. Believe that joy given to us by God is actually the beginning of us having a God-ordered perspective and beginning to live into whatever it is He has for us. Because ultimately, He's going to bring us peace. And so the first thing here is a fractured heart. That's one of the other perspectives. And you will struggle with that. I struggle with that. And then there's the distracted heart. Listen to verse 4. Tremble and do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. The distracted heart. What makes you tremble? Here's another way to think about that, okay? Because I don't do a lot of trembling, right? We don't, we don't cower in fear often. The idea of trembling here is what, what would terrify you if it was taken away from you this next week? Like, what's the thing that if you lost next week would absolutely send you into a tailspin? It's not that it shouldn't, okay? It's not that it shouldn't. But maybe it's something like if I don't get that promotion or if I don't get those grades... Or maybe it's, it's something more significant. But what the psalmist is talking about here is, what is the thing that ultimately is going to be able to carry you in this life? What if it's your husband or wife? What if I put the pressure on Jamie to be everything I need her to be in order for me to be a nice person? I need her to do all these things, and then I can be a nice person. That is not healthy, and that is not real. That's making her to be the God that only God can be for me. Do you see? 
It's a delusional thing. I'm trembling before something that can't actually give me what my heart is telling me it can give me. It's a distraction. But there's something else that's offered. A certain heart. Tremble and do not sin when you're on your bed. Search your hearts and be silent. Verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. That's the certain heart. And so rather than a distracted heart that's believing lies, God calls us to a certain heart that says, I'm going to start with this. Maybe I don't have an answer to any other question, but I know this one. I'm going to start hacking into what it means to trust in the Lord. Because apparently, according to God's word, if I'm going to trust him, that leads me to joy. That leads me to a God-ordered perspective. I may not understand all the political things going on. I may not understand all the best next steps for all the stuff we're processing. But I know this. We need to trust in the Lord in order to have a God-ordered perspective that's going to lead us to the place where God wants us to be. So that's what we're going to do. And so there's the fractured heart, there's the distracted heart, and then there's the fearful heart versus the contented heart. This is verse 6. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Man, that's a question people are asking today. What's going to deliver us? Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. You know, the answer to the longing for prosperity that the psalmist is is asking right here isn't who's going to pay the bills, although bills need to be paid. That's true. He's saying, look, first order of things, let the light of God's grace shine upon us and direct us as we move forward. Let the light of your face shine upon us. It isn't wrong to want to be satisfied. It isn't wrong to want to be full. It's not wrong to not want to suffer. That's actually not wrong. But when, and it will, suffering finds you, and when frustration, and it will, finds you, God invites you to recalibrate to this. And rather than having a fearful heart, to begin to say, Lord, give me a heart that is content because your light shines upon me. Walk me through this. Be with me in the midst of this. As a Christian, our hearts in this life are divided, and they will vacillate between these perspectives. You know, I've been walking with Jesus a while, and I'm just telling you, at least it's still my experience, your heart will vacillate. And yet, God is there to answer us. The question is not, will you have a disordered perspective at times? The question is, when you find that disordered perspective taking root, do you say to yourself, Lord, order my heart after yours. Give me joy. I'm going to pray this prayer. Answer me when I call to you. Hear me in my distress. Let your light shine upon me. Be gracious to me. Watch over me when I sleep. Make me dwell in safety. Lord, be my God. The beautiful, powerful, wonderful news about what the gospel tells us, that that by grace, as we trust in God, He actually answers to these things. You know, my encouragement to you this week is to ask yourself the question, what is really ordering your life? Like, what do you really give yourself to? You give yourself to lots of things. You, you have to and you need to. But what are you ordering your heart around? You know, one of the, one of the, look at how you respond to really stressful situations. That's one of the like, insights you can get to what you're ordering your heart around if you're easily triggered all the time. Man, what am I calibrating off of? Can you, God, do a work in my heart to make me more patient? Now, I'm sharing that with you because that's one I pray a lot. Or maybe it's fear. God, I'm so afraid. 
And I think the Lord says, you know what? You should be because this world is scary. But I am your shield and I am your defender and I will watch over you and I will be with you. And you will not have to experience abandonment like my son did on the cross. You will not have to experience that because of what he's done for you. So you just trust in me. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to go before you. You know, that's, as I've been studying Psalm 4 this week, that's been my prayer, is that God would reorder my heart. That He would give me a God-ordered perspective. Because I want to be in this place, in peace. Able to sleep in areas where I don't find a lot of sleep, or areas I find a lot of anxiety. That God would teach me to trust Him, and to be wise in the midst of wherever He's calling me, to know that He's with me, and here we go. To have a God-ordered perspective you know you you know this but i just moved here right we've been here for almost a month you know i guess exactly a month it's august 9th and we're mostly unpacked and that's great but right now there are two rooms in our house that are disordered and guess whose rooms response who's primarily responsible for those rooms this guy my garage and my office are the two rooms in our house that are not organized at all and it brings me a little stress and i was talking to jamie about that this week i said okay Next week, I'm really going to try to work on that. And as I'm looking at my calendar, I'm like, oh boy, here we go again, right back into disorder. You know, I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to mean for you this week. Disorder is going to find its way toward you. You need to know this. As soon as you smell it coming near, as soon as it's drawing near to you, remember Psalm 4. Pray this prayer. This is not a hard one to memorize. You ready? Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. The maker of heaven and earth gives that to you so that you can know who to call out to. You're using the divine words that are given to us here to call out to God in the midst of whatever you're going through and to know that by doing this, you're actually praying in such a way that it's leading you to the end of the the chapter here. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. May God give us peace this week and order our perspectives in our hearts around his goodness. Let me pray for us as we celebrate the supper. Father, we do come before you and ask for your grace this week. As we read Psalm 4 and we think about how disorder seems to make its way into our lives and it made its way into David's life so long ago, and yet in the midst of that, he was able to call out to you and say, Arise, Lord, hear my prayer, be with me, guide my heart, direct my steps, give me joy. Remind me that the light of your face shines upon me. Lord, would you massage that deep into our hearts this week as we go about the things you've called us to, that we would call out to you and ask you to arise and then anticipate it because you've promised it in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.